Good morning, everyone. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We are really glad to see you here this morning. We're about to get started with some worship. So if you'd like to and you're able, you're welcome to stand.
You may be seated. And will you all pray with me, please? Dear Lord and Father, thank you that you promise us that where two or three are gathered, you are there in the midst. Lord, we welcome you amongst us today and celebrate the gift of life that you have lavished upon each of us. We ask that you would open our ears so that we may hear your voice. Open our minds that we may receive your eternal wisdom. Open our spirit so that we may know your leading and guidance. And open our hearts so that we may receive your wonderful love. We ask all of this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, La Jolla Community Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Hope everybody is bright-eyed and bushy-tailed after a wonderful, amazing weekend of football. I had a wonderful time last week. I don't know if you all did. I absolutely love this worship song. Just the idea that it doesn't matter what mountain you're on or what valley you're in. God's praise should always be on your lips. It is a powerful, powerful song that can just guide us no matter what kind of phase of life that we're in. So thank you guys so much for leading us in that. Well, I would love to bring everybody's attention. On your way in, you should have received one of our wonderful, lovely little bulletins. By the way, my name is Ryan Sylvia. I am the director of youth ministries here at La Jolla Community Church, and I want to welcome you all to our wonderful service this morning. On this wonderful little bulletin, you'll notice this top half folds right in half. If you didn't get one, I'd love to grab you one on, the, on my way out. But this top half, we hope that you take home. It's got some fun information on some upcoming events like Ash Wednesday on the back. But most importantly, we would hope that you would use this card to invite somebody to church. Let them know that we have a wonderful community that is looking to grow and pour into more people here in UTC. So please take this top half home. I don't want to see any laying on the ground. Tear the top half off. Maybe put it at the bottom of the trash so I don't see it. Or take it home. Invite somebody. Let them know that you love them. This bottom half is for us here while we're here at church. This first part says get connected with us. This is how we at La Jolla Community Church can get you plugged in, engaged, and involved in some of the amazing ministries that are going on here at La Jolla Community Church. Maybe you want to be part of our youth or young adult ministry where we do lunch every 1230. Maybe you can serve or be a part of it. Maybe you want to help out in children's ministry, our greeting team. We've got so many wonderful teams that we would love you to be a part of, but we need to know what ministries you would like to join. So please take a moment, fill out this card. Let us know how we can connect with you. On the other side is our prayer card. It says, let us pray for you. We at La Jolla Community Church believe in the power of prayer. Every single week, we have a devoted prayer team that I get to be a part of that prays over every single card that gets turned in. Whether it's as small as, hey, I wish my Super Bowl team would win this week, to as large as, hey, I don't know where rent is going to come from next week. We want to pray for you. We want to provide for you. We want to help you out. So please take a moment, fill out this prayer card. Let us know how we can love on you, how we can pray for you, how we can support you this week. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming on our wonderful Sunday morning. Um, and with that, I'm going to invite Pastor Steve up to lead us in a message. Well, good morning. We've been asking the question, uh, how does God's story shape yours? How does God's story uh, shape yours? And if we're honest, we'll probably say, I don't know. Um, is it supposed to? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Help me. Uh, if you were here last week, yeah, you heard Scott Schimmel do a great job talking about uh, an answer to that question, looking at the life of, of David, King David, and how David was chosen against all odds, and um, his life and his story shapes yours. And uh, Scott explored that a bit. Plus, he has some great stories about the Super Bowl. If you haven't seen that, go back and, and watch that. Fantastic. So we've been working our way through the Old Testament because we believe that the present is rooted in the past. We're not preoccupied with the past as in, gee, wouldn't it be great if we were back there or if that was the way it was now? But we're saying, unless we understand what God has been doing, we don't understand what God is doing, and we'll never be able to an answer that question, how does God's story shape yours? And so um, we're going to continue that uh, today. Uh, so we don't look back just to learn lessons, but we look back to remember our God-given purpose. And you might say, well, it's sort of weird. I'm, I'm not Jewish, and I'm looking back at Jewish scriptures, reviewing Jewish history, uh, butchering Jewish names when I try to pronounce them, or places. Um, we sang a song today uh, you know, uh, about your Ebenezer. How's that going for you? How's that working out with you and your Ebenezer? And um, thank you for moving forward. Some people just leave. And so this is awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, 
we have bouncers now in case it goes long. They're, they graciously walk me off the... Um, Ebenezer, okay, there's a word like that. You sing that song and, and nobody raised their hand during that song, I noticed. Hey, hey, whoa, whoa, what is an Ebenezer? Why are we singing a word Ebenezer? Uh, the only one I know is attached to a last name, Scrooge, you know, and, and Ebenezer, it was Samuel, the prophet, seeing the people of Israel, the, the army defeated twice by the Philistines, and that they knew they were supposed to confront the Philistines, and they were 0 for 2, and going into the, the third of the series, and so Samuel wants to remind them who they are, and, and to whom they belong, and he puts this stone up, he says, this is the marker and, and I'm telling you that this stone will remind you that God has brought you this far for a purpose. And they won the battle. And it changed everything as they moved forward as a nation. So all of a sudden these obscure words and, and places and events become absolutely germane to us. Uh, George Santayana, I think it was a great, the great Yale historian, said, unless we learn well the lessons of history, we're doomed to, re- to repeat them. That's half the truth. But we're not trying to learn lessons from history and repeat them. That's impossible. Different circumstances, different people, etc. What we want to do is look back and say, what was God doing? What is God doing? What can we trust that God will do? So it's a larger perspective than learning and trying to mine for lessons from history. Though we get lots of those in the Bible, and that's super helpful. But the real issue, the real story, the reason God's story shapes yours is that He's present always. He's always present He's always at work doing his will. And we are often so unaware of it, we can't respond appropriately. We can't respond appropriately. I was walking through PB one time with Janet, and um, uh, I, I, it was just one of those PB moments, you know, when you walk through PB, sometimes you go, this is so awesome. I didn't have to get on a plane to go to this exotic foreign world. And, and you know... Um, uh, there's this guy who looks deranged. Uh, he looks so out of it. He's got dreads. He's, he looks like he's a walking pile of rags. I mean, he would say this of himself. So I'm not disrespecting him. I'm just describing him. And, and I'm, I'm far enough away to hear this guy, Steve, Steve. I'm like, that guy can't be calling me. I, don't, I look back and, he's, and I, that can't, I just keep walking. And all of a sudden I feel his tug. I'm like, it's the guy. And he goes, Steve, it's me. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the guy that washes our windows. Now that sounds kind of like, oh, the guy washes our windows. No, this is the guy that lives in Bali most of the year, makes so much money washing windows in La Jolla that he lives in Bali and serves for, for seven, eight months of the year, then deigns to come back and power wash your house and do your windows. And he looks like that and he, he goes, man, I love the fact that you thought I was a homeless guy and I was, I was interrupting your day. I said, well, not exactly. You were just a guy who I didn't know. And so uh, that story has nothing to do with anything other than to say that... <laughs> no, what it means is this. If you don't recognize the voice of God, if you don't recognize the person of God, if you don't recognize the unconventional, uh, outlandish ways that God works, uh, among even the most conventional ways, uh, you don't know how God's story shapes yours. We just can't know. It's foreign to us. It's generally outside of our our realm of experience. And so therefore, as smart and as well-educated as this body of people is, as accomplished as this group of people would be, by anybody's reckoning, if we don't know the Lord, we don't know much. We don't know enough. So that's why we're working our way through the Old Testament. Um, By the way, there's no word in Hebrew for history. We're not doing just an historic survey of irrelevant data. Uh, there's no word, did you know that? There's no word in Hebrew for history. The word that, that, that um, is used in Hebrew to, to invoke the, the study of God's word and the remembering of God's will is just that, the word memory. I love that. It's the word memory. Zicharon, zicharon, remember, memorable. God wants us to remember, oh yeah, that's right, he's God and I'm not. Ah, oh, he's God and, and I'm his beloved. He's God. I don't need to be Jewish to respond uh, to his story shaping mine. In fact, the reason he called these people we know as Israel, the Jews, was to be a light to all the nations so that all nations could be blessed. So we're not trespassing as we look at the Old Testament. We're entering into what should be and should become familiar to us. So we could say, ah, oh, that's right. God is present now because he was present then. Uh, and so what's your version of an Ebenezer kind of a thing? So that's where we're going. 
And so we want to remember who God is, what he's doing, and who we are in his story. And so basically then, this process of memory and remembering and learning enough that we can now remember something we previously didn't know or care about, is that we want to understand life's purpose. We want to understand what do the days of our lives mean. There was a long-running, I never watched it, but maybe you watched it, there's this long-running soap opera called Days of Our Lives. I won't ask for a show of hands except for everybody here. Did anybody, anybody, anybody ever watch that show? Okay, I see some hands on like this, you know, but um, Days of Our Lives, the thing went on forever. It might still be going on. I mean, at the end of time, when the world is a smoking heap, no, um, <laughs> There'll be two things, days of our lives and cockroaches will be, have survived because this show is enduring. Why? Everybody cares about the days of their lives. And the, and the book I want to take you through, some part of it this morning, uh, is called that. It's called Chronicles. Chronicles. We know it as Chronicles. It's called Divrei Hayamim. Divrei, all the days. Hayamim. Uh, actually, it's, it's the, the words, divrei div, is all the words, and hayamim means the days. Yom is like, if I say uh, uh, yom tov, good morning, good day. Yamim is all the days, and divrei is the words of our days, which it means, really, in Hebrew, is the meaning of our days. And so what we have here is this compilation of everything that was documented in Israel's history from the perspective of the kings and the priests and the prophets and the people. All these bits and pieces of data, these annals that were maintained, these books that were written along the way on scrolls, um, inscribed in hard surfaces, have all been now collected by a guy named Ezra. And he says, let me show you the, the meaning of our days. Why is he doing this? He's doing this because they've been in captivity two times, the northern part of Israel in 722, taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Then the Babylonians, who've, who've taken over from the Syrians, uh, take the rest of Israel, uh, and not everybody, but the, the key people, uh, thousands of people, but the people who, who make things happen, uh, they take them and completely uh, decapitate the body of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, all together called Israel. This happens in 587. So two times, 722, 587. They're in captivity for about 70 years. They come back, and there's some people that are, are tasked with, because the Persians have now taken over the Babylonians. They say, hey, you know what? There's Egypt, and there's us. What is between us and Egypt? I know that land that we demolished called Israel, Palestine. Hey, you people go back. We'll fund it. We'll give you all the money you need. You have my permission. Build your temple. Build the walls. Rebuild the city. You're good to go. And, of course, it was God's grace working through a Persian leader. Xerxes, Darius, and the people are fully funded to go back. So this guy Ezra, Nehemiah, you know those names, they go back and they start this whole process. Zerubbabel, fancy name of a guy who's related to King David. They all go back over successive decades and they rebuild the city. And Ezra says, you know what we need to do? We need to reestablish who we are. We need to remember who we are. So he collects all these annals, all these records, and he compiles them into this thing called Chronicles. So when you read Chronicles, it starts with the beginning of creation, and it takes you up to the present, recovering from exile. You with me so far? And so uh, this is completely irrelevant to anybody who doesn't know why it is essential that we know this stuff. It's essential that we know this stuff. Hard to believe that, you know, a hundred and some years ago, doctors thought it was stupid to wash your hands. Somebody said, hey, I think maybe... It was like, are you kidding me? No, it's the air around us that's infecting us. No, it's germs on your hands that are infecting you. And we would consider that just a bedrock truth. Why, who, if you don't know that, you shouldn't be a doctor. We're talking about that when it comes to God's Word. If you don't know that, who are you? You have no memory of who you are. You don't know who you're supposed to be. So the meaning of our days. So we're in Second Chronicles 34 and 35, and uh, we're looking at this man named uh, Josiah. Some people would say Josiah is Josiah. So Josiah is a king uh, with a heart for God. He was the 18th king of this collective Israel Judah from David. So between David and Josiah, there, there are 18, there are 16 generations of kings. David being the first major king. Saul was kind of a, not quite their king, but it came together under David, came apart after Solomon, 
it divides into two places. The northern part goes their own way, Israel. The southern part, Judah. But the writer of Chronicles, Ezra, says he keeps talking about them all as Israel. Because though the Israel of the north has been replaced, swapped out, ten tribes gone for good. A few of them came into the south. Judah was left standing. And in these chronicles, as he's talking from the standpoint of in the, in the you know, you know, 530-ish B.C., he's looking at something that happened in um, the 7th century B.C. And he's saying, I want to talk to you about Israel. And he's going to focus on Judah. And he's doing that through the life of Josiah. And now we see Josiah's story also in 2 Kings. So in 2 Kings, you can read the parallel of what we're going to read in Chronicles, but there's some details in Chronicles uh, that we get that we don't get necessarily in Kings. Um, let me summarize what King says about 2 Kings 23-25 says this about Josiah. Neither before or after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did. Now think about that. He's in the line of David. So either Ezra is totally disrespecting, dissing King David, or he's simply recognizing the righteousness, the goodness of King Josiah. So, so the, the writer of Kings says, Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. We're talking about a stretch of 400 years of kings. And there's none like Josiah. So because there's none like Josiah, and his story is so critical to not just what happened before him or what happened during his reign, but what happened since then. We wouldn't be sitting here having a conversation if it wasn't for Josiah. It's not an exaggeration. I think you'll see why. To help you see that, I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture. I usually do a lot of talking. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture. So bear with me as I read it very quickly, because I want to give you the whole scope, the whole sweep of what was going on with Josiah. I'll make very few comments, just enough to, to make, be sure there's a little clarity as we go. And so this is a long passage worth reading in full. If you, if you get our Read, Think, and Pray every week, it's, it's basically devotional that sets you up to hear, understand, and enter into the sermon. It's not the same as a sermon, but in this case, it's the same scripture. You probably already read this. So here we go. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. We could stop and talk about that for a long time. Uh, I was with a four-year-old for a week recently. I can tell you four years would not improve his chances of being a good king. Uh, so Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He was preoccupied for the first part of his reign. They didn't have trucks and toys like we have, but they were, he was busy playing and being a kid, and other people were running things. But he comes into his own at about age 16. He starts to notice what's going on. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father, David. Now, remember, 400 years between them almost. But he considers David his father. You'll find out why. Not turning aside to the right or to the left. I'll tell you why. His dad, Amon, was a rotten, scoundrel, dictator, bad guy. Um, he, was a, he was only in office for three years before some people said, we should remove him and do all of us a favor. His grandfather, Manasseh, king for 40 years, was uh, the epitome of tyrant and uh, bad guy. His great-grandfather, Hezekiah, started out as a good guy and became an evil guy. And pretty much most of the people between David and this guy were called, and he did evil on the side of the Lord. So Josiah, where did this come from? Well, but in his eighth year of reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In his twelfth year, okay, so let's do the math here. Eighth, okay, so he's, he's, he's 16 in his eighth year. His 12th year, he's 20 years old. I love this passage because we're talking about what we call young people, kids. As a high school kid, he said, something's wrong in this land, and I want to make a difference in it. 16. By 20, he said, I think I have enough experience now to understand how I can initially start to make that difference. You want to you you help a kid go from being a kid to a, 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 a man and a woman of God? You give them exposure to who he, God is. And you give him experiences of testing that out. And somebody was behind the scenes doing this for Josiah. I'm sure it was his mom, Jadida. I'm sure it was his second cousin, Zephaniah, one of the great prophets of God. But some people were influencing him against all odds. 
against the generational momentum that he'd been raised in. So in his 12th year, he begins to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols, all these symbols of idolatry, captivating symbols of idolatry. We think, well, big deal, poles and rocks, and who cares? It was captivating. It was, you can't take your eyes off this. You can't stop focusing on this. It all started because when Solomon, who was for most of his rule the wisest man in the world, started marrying dozens and dozens and dozens of women from foreign places who brought their foreign gods, and he started loading up the temple with these foreign gods. And producing people said, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to Christians who go, you know my karma? And I go, whoa, 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 your karma? What are you talking about, your karma? Or, you know, I was looking at my karma. You know, I'm a, I'm a Libra, and so I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? This is so insinuated into our culture we are idolaters in our culture. We are idolaters. We, are the, we, we believe in the idolatry of everything is true, and everything that is true doesn't really matter that much anyway. It's pretty much my truth. So we've, we've become more sophisticated in idolatry. But this is permeating all the people and all the places in Israel. Everywhere you go, this is reinforced as so cool and so hip and so happening and so necessary and essential that if you're not sophisticated, <laughs> you, you, know, you don't understand this stuff. But if you are, this is what you roll with. So it says, it says here, under his direction, the altars of the Baals, false gods, were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them, smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Hey, you're dead. Here's more dead stuff to keep you company. I mean, it's really harsh. Harsh in a profoundly moral and, and logical way. Let's, let's add the dead to the dead. The people who worshipped it and now they're dead. No hope of life because they're dead, because they worship idols. Let's pile on the dead idols on those graves. Highly symbolic. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, all over the country. Uh, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. And then he went back to Jerusalem. And of course, then he noticed, wait, it's all here too. It's everywhere. And he keeps going. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, now he's 26. He's got up ahead of speed. He's got momentum. 26. He's changing the face of the nation. You're talking about being risk-taking. There's money behind all these idols. There's power behind all these idols. There's influence. There's comfort. There's all these things that uh, you, you mess with me, man. That's, that's a step too far. And he, he persists in this. So uh, to purify the land in the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Maseah, the ruler of the city of Jerusalem, with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. He realizes, why is the temple of the Lord in complete disarray? It's a warehouse full of idols. It's an unfinished construction project. I mean, it was a temple, but it's been such decay and such delayed maintenance and, and postponed care that it's a mess. It's a travesty. So these people, these leaders, went to Hilkiah the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites, who were the designated priests and keepers of the temple, who were the gatekeepers, had collected from the people of Manasseh Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel from all the people of Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. These are all places like counties, provinces around the country. Then they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. They also gave money to the carpenters and builders to purchase dressed stone and timber for joists and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. Sixteen generations of kings had done this. The workers labored faithfully over them, faithfully over them to direct uh, them were Jehath and Obadiah, Levites descended from Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam descended from Kohath. These are all famous priestly families, some of whom wrote the, some of the Psalms. The Levites, all who were skilled in playing musical instruments, had charge of the laborers and supervised all the workers from job to job. Some of the Levites were secretaries, scribes, and gatekeepers. While they were bringing up the money they had been that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law. The law that had been given through Moses. What? 
He found it? Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Well, what a shock. It's been there for 400 years. Unread, neglected, set aside. Probably covered in dust and debris. Obscured by idols of every form. And no one seemed to notice for 400 years. He gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. And then he lowers the bomb, the boom. He, the big reveal comes next. This 26-year-old does not know what's going to happen. He's thrilled to know that the progress is being made to restore the glory of the temple of the Lord. An ultimate act of respect he can think of. He has no other source no other frame of reference for what else could be important. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the Lord of the law, he tore his robes. Kings tells us he wept and wept and wept. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asaiah the king's attendant, go and inquire of the Lord for me, and for the remnant in Israel and Judah, the remnant in Israel is all those people who got to remain when the rest of the ten tribes were taken off, about what is written in the book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because... Those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. He had no idea how bad it was. And his heart has sunk. Both in grief for who they're not and in a sense of hope in what they could be. Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophet Huldah who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And she used this funny turn of phrase, tell the man, because she's speaking to the king as a man, as a mortal, as one created Ha'adam, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the image of God as, as Adam was. A mere mortal. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. And then, this is a brilliant woman, this prophet Huldah. She speaks to the man, Josiah. Now she speaks to the king, Josiah. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. A message from God through Huldah to Josiah. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. The king then called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin, uh, the surrounding area, pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from the territory, all the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. It's now a nation of priests. 
As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Now here's the second bombshell. They found the, the book in the temple, found it in the temple, stumbled upon it, like an archaeological you know, you know, item. Now he turns his attention to the very heart and soul of what made Israel Israel. Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their duties and encouraged them in the service of the Lord's temple. He said to the Levites, who instructed all Israel and who had been consecrated to the Lord. And he goes to give them all these instructions. Now, I, I just read, he, he, he said, let's celebrate Passover. It's not been celebrated in 400 years. He said to the Levites who instructed all Israel and who had been consecrated to the Lord, put the sacred ark in the temple that Solomon and son of David, king of Israel, built. It is not to be carried about on your shoulders. They had these poles that they put through and carry it so they wouldn't touch it. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves by families in your divisions according to the instructions written by David, the king of Israel, and by his son Solomon. There's so many people, they have to divide them into tribes and then families and subfamilies and assign a Levite. Uh, to each one of them, to distribute what will become the Passover meal. It's an amazing logistical challenge to do this. You can imagine. You're going to see why. Uh, Prepare yourselves by families and your divisions according to the instructions. Uh, Stand in the holy place with a group of Levites for each subdivision of the families of your fellow Israelites, the lay people. Slaughter the Passover lambs, consecrate yourselves, and prepare the lambs for your fellow Israelites, doing what the Lord commanded through Moses. uh, Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 lambs and goats for the Passover offerings, and also 3,000 cattle, all from the king's own possessions. His officials also contributed voluntarily to the people and the priests and Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel, the the officials in charge of God's temple, gave the priests 2,600 Passover offerings and 300 cattle. Now these are offerings to offer to God, not to the people. So on behalf of the, the, the people... They're offering to God. Um, on behalf of God, they're giving you know, this Passover food to the people. It's an amazing, amazing, complex thing they're doing here. Uh, also, Konaniah, along with Shemaiah and Nethanel, his brothers, and Hashabiah, Jael, and Josabad, the leaders of the Levites, provided 5,000 Passover offerings and 500 head of cattle for the Levites to sacrifice to the Lord. The service was arranged, and the priests stood in their places with the Levites in their divisions as the king had ordered. The Passover lambs were slaughtered, and the priests splashed against the altar the blood handed to them. You can imagine rivers of blood flowing down out of the temple into the Kidron Valley. Uh, while the Levites skinned the animals, they set aside the burnt offerings to give them to the subdivisions of the families of the people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. They did the same with the cattle. They roasted the Passover animals over the fire as prescribed and boiled the holy offerings in pots, cauldrons, and pans and served them quickly to all the people. After this, they made preparations for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the descendants of Aaron, were sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fat portions until nightfall. So the Levites made preparations for themselves and for the Aaronic priests. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, were in the places prescribed by David. Asaph, Haman, and the Jeduthun, and Jeduthun, the king's seer. The gatekeepers at each gate did not need to leave their posts because their fellow Levites made their preparations for them. Everybody's being included in this. The first time in 400 years. They had to figure out how to do it, then they had to do it. So the gatekeepers at each gate didn't need to leave their posts. And so at that time, the entire service of the Lord was carried out for the celebration of the Passover and the offering of burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord as King Josiah had ordered. The Israelites who were present celebrated the Passover at that time and observed the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. So it's the Passover that goes into the festival of unleavened bread for the next week. The Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. And none of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah with the priests, the Levites, and all Judah, 
and Israel who were there with the people of Jerusalem. This Passover was celebrated in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. A 26-year-old did this. A 26-year-old. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, now this is 13 years later, uh, Josiah is now 39. Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. So there's a big thing going on with the Persians, or the Babylonians, uh, want to crush the Assyrians. The Assyrians are, are you know, partners with the Egyptians. So Necho from Egypt, if you imagine Egypt down here, Saudi Arabia is over here, Jordan, Syria as we know it is over here, Lebanon. They go up the coast, past Lebanon, they go to the border of what we know as Turkey and Syria, and that's where Carchemish is. Meanwhile, the, the, the Babylonians are coming from what would be the Persian Gulf, and there's a massive battle going to happen. But Necho sent messengers to Josiah saying, What quarrel is your king of Judah between you and me? It's not you I'm attacking at this time, but the house with which I'm at war. God has told me to hurry, so stop opposing God who is with me, or he will destroy you. So apparently, prophets had said to Josiah, hey, I think this is okay for him to, he's not invading, he's just, you, you know, he's transiting. But Josiah feels so, apparently, feels so protective of his duty to, to you know, guard what God has entrusted to them. He goes out to meet. Necho. Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but disguised himself to engage him in battle. He would not listen to what Necho had said at God's command, but went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo. Megiddo. Uh, from which we get the word Armageddon. Archers shot King Josiah, and he told his officers, take me away, I'm badly wounded. So they took him out of his chariot, put him in his other chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem where he died. He was buried in the tombs of his ancestors, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day all the male and female singers commemorate Joseph in the laments. Not in the book of Lamentations, but in these other laments that were written. These became a tradition in Israel and are written in the laments. The other events of Josiah's reign and his acts of devotion in accordance with what is written in the law of the Lord, all the events from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. All right. Thank you for indulging me reading all that. It's a little exhausting to, to have that much read. The public reading of Scripture is something we've lost. We have the attention span of a gnat. Really. Uh, we've been trained for that. People used to listen to Lincoln speak for two hours. We, we have ten minutes like, isn't there going to be a commercial or something? I need to learn about cryptocurrency. I mean, I need, I need Tom Brady telling me what I need to do in between this dashing Super Bowl activity, you know? So how do we explain Josiah? Well, his father and grandfather did evil on the side of the Lord. No help there. Did his mother inform and shape his love? We think, maybe. Or his cousin, Zephaniah, hopefully. But nonetheless, the big idea, the big reveal is this. Josiah was open and responsive to God, and God raised him up to bear witness. As a 16-year-old... As a 20-year-old, as a 26-year-old, and even uh, as a 39-year-old, uh, yes, he misread Necho's intentions, and he paid the price for it. But everybody makes mistakes, right? We're not representing Josiah as a perfect person. We're, we're, we're representing him as a passionate, righteous person and wanting to do what's right by God. By the way, the way the story ends is that Necho made a mistake too. Because those Babylonians crushed the Assyrians and crushed Necho's army, and Necho limped back down the coast to Egypt. So Josiah had, he said, okay, fine, you know, we'll just stand back and watch you walk through and watch you limp back. But Josiah felt like, gosh, every king for 16 generations of kings has forfeited the land to outsiders. Am I, am I reading this wrong? You might want to put it in modern terms. He didn't want to be Neville Chamberlain. And so he, he made an error. But who can dispute Josiah's commitment to living his life fully for the Lord? Remember what it was said of him in, in 2 Kings. Neither before or after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. So what Josiah did was extraordinary given the times in which he lived. 
and I'm going to just review them quickly, but think about the times in which you live. What, are, what could you do that is just normal for you, but really in the, in the light of history, in the light of your family's legacy, we say that was extraordinary that my mom and dad did that. My aunts and uncles, my grandparents did that. It's extraordinary that they took that kind of stand. I'm not talking about becoming belligerent and annoying in Jesus' name. I'm talking about being a person who, who says, I see what I see, and what, under the proper authority, as Josiah did, could I do to influence my culture, my family, my colleagues? So let's review. Uh, Israel had lost track of its core identity, and they'd fallen into idolatry, immorality, and injustice. We'll talk next week, we'll wrap up this, you know, how does God's story shape your series, as we talk about what was the role of the prophets? And then we'll turn the corner as we move into Lent, talking about well, why Jesus? But Israel had lost track of its core identity, and so idolatry, immorality, and injustice were just normal cultural values all of a sudden. Like, hey, that's how life worked, man. Second, the temple was cluttered with idols, as was the city and every town and priest and person, it seemed, in Israel. Three, the Torah gathered dust. Passover hadn't been celebrated for 400 years, a travesty. You wonder why God was ready to send them into exile. Four, yet God preserved a remnant of people in Judah faithful to him. God always provides a witness. God always preserves a remnant of people. Will you be one of them? Now, I'm not talking about you know, running around like your hair's on fire. Uh, I'm just saying, as we see a sense of urgency in, a, in the brief life that we have to live, how do we do whatever our version of what Josiah did? Right? Five, Josiah courageously exercised his proper authority, destroying the places of idol worship and the priests who had forsaken God and his people. Six, through Josiah's faithfulness, God brought revival, renewal, restoration. He prepared the people to endure exile in Babylon. Think about that. You think, well, gosh, after all that Josiah did, why did God allow them? Well, because immediately Josiah's son disregarded everything his father did. His son, like, like um, Josiah's father, was king for a very brief time before he was assassinated. And, and, and all, literally all hell broke loose. Uh, the people were carried off into Babylonian captivity. Because God said to them, I'm going to do this. Uh, and then God said through prophets, look, you're going to go into captivity. Go there. And I'll, I'll work in you and through you. But the people said, no way we're going to go there. And then they fought. And of course, then by then the city and the temple were all destroyed. So it goes from bad to worse after, after uh, Josiah's death. But God used that generation that he was king, 31 years, to prepare the people for exile. They went into exile with Jeremiah saying, hey, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you a future and hope. And then following that time, they come out of exile, Ezra is ready. Why? Because he's reading what happened to Josiah. So Ezra does the same thing. He does, he, he, he does a Josiah move with the regathered people of Israel. 42,000 people came back from, from captivity with a bunch of hostile people around them in that small province of Israel. And, and Ezra said, guess what? We're going to rebuild a wall. We're going to rebuild a temple. Nehemiah is part of that. Zerubbabel is part of that. And when it was all done, what did they do? They gathered all the people and they read the word of God. And what did the people do? They wept. Because this happened, that could happen. So you think about it. In Josiah's moment of history, there was no Bible and there was no Passover. Zero. And because of Josiah, he reclaimed that. So that in the disruption of captivity, coming out of captivity, they had the word of God and they had Passover. So like Josiah, the seventh point would be this. Like Josiah, your faith is essential right now and for what is to come in your life. You want to live well? Christ has to be center for you. You want to die well? You're going to die. You might suffer before you die. There's nothing more heartbreaking for any of us than to watch the people we love suffer and die. We think, Lord, just take them, take them. And it often doesn't work that way. But don't you want their heart filled with the love of Christ? Don't you want them having that hope when their body is failing them that the Lord isn't? So to live well and to die well requires that we do what Josiah did. With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
So how does God's story shape yours? That's the question I asked at the beginning. I ask you this question as well. Are you a person with a heart for God? As was, as was described of Josiah. You don't have to do epic, heroic things. You simply have to be you in Christ. That is sufficient. Are you cultivating your life rooted in God's Word and His Holy Spirit? Are you willing to risk the culture's pushback? Perhaps even persecution. Uh, we, we talk, I hear people all the time in this country talk about how Christians are persecuted. I think, well, that's laughable. Our version of what, what it means to be persecuted is like going to the store and saying, gosh, they're out of arugula. What am I going to do? <sighs> now what? Or they only got two kinds of shard. <laughs> you know, you go, uh, we don't know what persecution is. Uh, why? Because we won't do anything to even brush up against the possibility of pushback and persecution. We're timid. Why? Because all the idols of our culture tell us we're supposed to be timid. Oh, you can't bring your faith here. This is secular, perfect, you know. Guess what? You don't have to ask anybody for permission to pray. You can pray for everybody in your family. You can pray for every elected leader. And don't pray that God strikes them down. Pray that God fills their heart with his love. Pray that God changes their mind. Pray that God uses every circumstance possible to bring them to a place of saying, dear God, how did I miss you? And you won't know, people won't know why or how, but you'll be, you'll be shaking your head going, I wonder if my prayer somehow moved that. Are you cultivating your life that way? Josiah wasn't perfect, neither are you, but he intentionally wanted to honor God and bless people. Do you? Do we? What will the divrei Hayamim look like for you? What will the days of your lives mean for you and for the people who follow you? Who look back and say, I wish I could tell you more about so-and-so, but there's really nothing to say about them. They didn't really do anything. Or, you know, they were so successful, they made a lot of money, and they'd had all these prestigious this, that, the other, and somebody will say, that's it? Didn't they do anything? No, they weren't really, they were too busy to love anybody and to care for anybody, but they really did achieve a lot. Uh, if you really think that's important, read the book of Ecclesiastes. That will disabuse you of any notion that your accomplishments matter. They, they matter only to the degree that your heart is right with God and He uses you to glorify Him and bless people. Then it's awesome what you do. Apart from that, what you do is an empty vapor of vanity. I pray God's word spoken to Josiah through hold of the prophet applies to us. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what He spoke, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. God will hear you. God yearns to hear you. Are you going to pour out your heart to him? Because as you do, you'll hear him. What will it look like in your life? What specific action will you take? And so, Lord Jesus, my prayer for me, for my brothers and sisters here, is that we would have the wisdom and discernment of a 16-year-old and a 26-year-old, a 20-year-old, a young man surrounded by people who are antagonistic to you. But there was a remnant. There were some faithful people speaking to his heart, shaping his thoughts, releasing in him your power. And Lord, we thank you for his responsiveness to you, his humility before you, his willingness to feel deeply and to be moved in ways that were purposeful and productive uh, to live out his faith. I pray that for each one of us, Lord Jesus, whether we're young in life or old in life, whether we're stymied by big overwhelming problems or whether things are going really well for us, I pray that right where we are, Lord, we would have our own Josiah moment and that you would be honored and glorified and that would be our greatest legacy. We pray all this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. Well, uh, this is the time of offering. uh, uh, Offering you. Offering you. Uh, if you want to give financially to the church, there's lots of ways to do it. You can put some in a, in a little container by the door there. You can mail it to us. You can do whatever. Uh, we need your support financially, obviously. But most importantly, what we need is, uh, is you to be alive in Christ. The greatest thing you can be and do and give is to be alive in Christ. The world needs people who are alive in Christ. And so as we, as we conclude this time of worship, offer yourself to him. And let the words flow through your mind and your heart as you, as you sing them back to the Lord. And so let's do that in his name.
Fantastic. Thank you. Wow. Uh, perfect ending, uh, really, because it's a perfect beginning. That's a call. That's a call to repent, a call to return, a call to remember who you are in Him, uh, to open your heart and your mind to Him. Sometimes it moves us to laughter. He's so good. Sometimes it moves us to tears uh, when, we, when He touches the depth of our heart. We've so protected our hearts and our minds from Him. It takes a while sometimes to soften them enough to really feel like we're connecting with Him. But start where you are, and he'll meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. If we can pray for you before you leave today, go right out that door and around the corner to that lovely prayer garden, uh, and there'll be people who will have a prayer with you about 
whatever you need prayer for or you don't know how to express it, just say, please pray for me. And they will. And they won't make you feel weird or embarrassed. They'll just comfort you in prayer and powerfully lift you up in prayer. Then go over here, have something to eat and drink, uh, enjoy the patio. And then at 11, come back here because we do a really fun thing called conversations, uh, where it's actually a conversation. We facilitate conversations in groups. They're not, they're not intrusive. They won't put you on the spot. We watch a couple of really, really highly creative, well-done uh, five-minute videos produced by the Bible Project up in Portland. And then we respond to those in conversation. It's just fantastic. Uh, you'll learn a lot. You'll walk out of here uh, way smarter than you walked in. I can guarantee you that. So um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who brought you here today for a purpose, to remind you who he is and to fill your heart with his love, give you everything you need to walk with him now and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.